Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, historians who have written outside the scope of the inspired Holy Scripture have recorded that in the earliest days of the church it was a customary acknowledgement of and a confirmation of belief in the empty tomb of Jesus for Christians to greet one another with the words he is risen and for the response to be given back he is risen indeed honoring those earliest proclaimers of this wonderful, soul-saving gospel and affirming my own absolute and total trust in that gospel message, I greet all of you this morning with those same words, He is risen. And let the church respond, He is risen indeed. Amen. He absolutely is. Glory to our God and our humble gratitude to Him. For our risen Lord Jesus. Because without an empty tomb, without a truly risen and living Jesus, if Jesus had just remained dead in the grave like the Old Testament prophets and like the New Testament disciples and like every teacher of every other religion that has ever existed on this planet, we would be here today without a Savior, without hope, still dead in our sins and trespasses, awaiting the judgment and the punishment that we all deserve for our guilt against God. But, as every saved believer on this planet celebrated and remembered last Sunday, that grave was empty 
Because Jesus Christ did rise alive. Because he alone is our Savior and our only hope. But the facts that have been recorded for us do not just end there. The Gospel writers did not write, and on the third day the tomb was empty, the end. Moved by the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God, those writers went on to record eyewitness testimonies of much that happened after that world-shaking Sunday morning when the tomb was found empty. In a moment, I'd like to offer up a prayer, and then we will go to the scriptures where Almighty God has caused his own testimony concerning these things to be recorded for us and remind us of what the Apostle John so wonderfully declared. These things have been written for you so that you may know that you have eternal life who believe in the name of the Son of God. So would you pray with me for a moment, please? Our Father in heaven, praise and worship and honor and glory to your name. We humbly come to thank you today for the empty tomb, for everything that it means, for our resurrected and our living Savior, Jesus, for allowing us to assemble here this morning to hear and to receive what your word tells us about those things. And we glorify you that you have made our salvation possible through those things. And we most earnestly pray now for all who still do not believe those things. Lead them, please, to truth, to understanding, to faith, and to salvation, as you did so mercifully lead us. We ask in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you take up your Bibles with me, please? The recorded Word of God given to us. And we will be reading, beginning with the book of Matthew, starting at a point immediately after the women came to anoint Jesus' dead body, which they presumed would still be in the tomb, but they found that tomb empty. Starting from that point, starting from the moment when the angels told them, He is not here. He has arisen, just as He said. We will read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 to 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The first proof that Christ had arisen, he appeared to them and spoke to them in person. And again at Matthew, still in chapter 28, verse 16 to 20, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The second proof of the empty tomb, not appearing to just a couple of women, but to eleven disciples. Eleven, because remember, Judas has hung himself, and Matthias was not appointed as an apostle until the book of Acts. He appeared to these 11 men alive and speaking. Mark also wrote an account of what happened on that morning. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 15, 
Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, this is why we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Old Testament, the Jewish custom, was to worship in the synagogue on Saturdays. The early Christian church began worshiping on Sunday morning because that's when the tomb was empty. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Several people saw and witnessed and spoke with the risen and living Jesus. They went and told others. Those others would not believe just yet until he appeared to them also. And wasn't it just the same with us back at a former time in our own lives? We knew people who had personal encounters with the risen Jesus who had saved them, and they tried to tell us, and we weren't ready to believe it yet. At some point in his life, he proved himself to us so that we could believe and be saved. Luke and John also wrote accounts of what happened on that day. Those can be read in the book of Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 53, and also in the book of John chapter 20, verse 10, through chapter 21, verse 23. Luke was also the author of the book of Acts, the human author, that is, God being the true author, inspiring Luke to write the book, what became the book of Acts. At Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke wrote, how Jesus, after his suffering, appeared to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, because it was not the end. He was alive, he was walking around, he was appearing to people, he was talking to people. At one point, he even sat on a beach and ate some broiled fish with people, proving that he was alive. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke again in the book of Acts, these five accounts, of the risen and living Jesus are stumbling blocks to those who do not want to believe. And they can even sometimes be confusing to us who do believe. Because as we read them, as we hold them side by side, we will find places where they do not all say exactly the same thing or speak about exactly the same details. But there's nothing wrong with that. If I'm walking down the sidewalk and you're driving by in your car, and we both witness the exact same traffic accident. Well, the police are going to talk to me, the police are going to talk to you, and you and I will give a little bit different, but substantially the same accounts of that traffic accident, each from our own point of view, from our own experience, but both being equally true. And that is exactly what happened here. These are eyewitness accounts the Holy Spirit inspiring these four men to each write down what they personally saw, what they personally knew and experienced. From their own personal point of view, using their own personal style of writing, but all four being equally and absolutely true. In fact, the differences between these accounts only serve to strengthen 
not to weaken, but to support and strengthen the veracity of the Gospels. Because if these four men had just written word for word identically the same thing, well, we could just call that plagiarism, couldn't we? But that's not the case. We have different but the same accounts of what happened. Supporting, backing up each other, giving more detail to each other, different but the same gives us evidence that these men did not just sit in a room someplace and say, hey, let's get together and write a story that the whole world will believe. Different but the same tells us they independently of each other and of human influence wrote these things under the Holy Spirit of God and all four accounts are true. Now it might be one thing for these four men who loved and followed Jesus during his life to write accounts of him rising from the tomb. They loved him. It grieved them to see him die on the cross and to be put in the tomb. They would want nothing more than for him to rise back up and walk among them again. Okay, so these four who knew him, who walked with him, wrote a story about him rising up from the grave. That might be one thing, but what if? What if, I ask you, someone who hated the idea of the resurrection? What if someone who even killed people who believed in the resurrection later turned around and wrote an account himself supporting and proving the resurrection to be true? What if a Jesus hater then became such a defender, such a proclaimer of the resurrection, that he himself became one of the hated and one of the persecuted. Wouldn't that be something else for us to think about? But that is exactly what did happen to a man named Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee among Pharisees, with a license in his hand to arrest, punish, and kill as many Christians as he could get his hands on after the Lord Jesus personally appeared to Saul on that road to Damascus in the book of Acts, where he was on his way to hunt down Christians and kill them. We find him later known as Paul the Apostle, preaching the risen Jesus and planting churches all over the geographical region, writing letters to those churches that he planted, letters which eventually down to us would become about two-thirds of our own New Testament that we have today. And in one of those letters to the churches, Paul wrote this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 9. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and this is from a guy who used to kill people for believing exactly this. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Amen. Paul, this former persecutor of the church, this former killer of Christians, does a complete 180 and writes down these things, preaches these things, 
plants churches around the area to teach these things as being absolutely true beyond any question. He writes down as being true the things that he once used to hate people for believing. That Jesus died for our sins. That Jesus was buried. That Jesus rose again alive on the third day. And that Jesus personally appeared to Peter and to all of the apostles. Jesus personally appeared to more than 500 people all at once. And Paul writes here, you don't have to believe me. There's 500 living witnesses. Go ask them if you don't want to take my story for it. You can go ask 500 people who also witnessed the same thing. Jesus appeared personally to James and then again to all of the apostles. And finally, Jesus personally appeared to Paul himself, who admits, who calls himself unworthy of this high calling because he once persecuted God's church. We know that the glory of God in his plan for the salvation of sinners did not grind to a halt with a still-occupied tomb. The tomb was empty, and this was confirmed by the women who arrived first, by the several apostles who went to check out the women's testimony of this, by all of the apostles, by a converted persecutor of the church, by over 500 people all at once, all who met in person the very same Jesus alive who they thought was supposed to be laying dead in a tomb. But even so, starting from that very day up to today, there has been and there always will be resistance to these facts. Beginning as early as the very same day of the resurrection of Jesus and continuing until now, there have been many attempts to deny, to cover up, to explain away the things that happened that day. Let's have a look this morning at some of the lies that have been told in an attempt to hide that empty tomb. Some of the lies many people, even today, would still rather choose to believe than to have to face what that empty tomb means. The very first lie invented to hide the truth is the one which is recorded for us in Scripture itself, the one about his disciples coming by night and stealing away the body. Let's look at what God had recorded for us concerning that very first attempt to hide the empty tomb. In the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 11 to 15, this is after the tomb has been discovered empty, the soldiers have gone to report to their superiors what has happened, and this is what follows. 28, verse 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had uh, assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, they did as they directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. The very first lie to cover up the empty tomb was that the soldiers fell asleep, the disciples came and took the body away and hid it someplace. But this cover-up, this smokescreen, fails to explain, first of all, how a whole squad of Roman guards all 
at the same time fell so soundly asleep on duty, which, in the Roman army of those days, falling asleep on guard duty, falling asleep at your post, was a death penalty. These guards would have been executed for falling asleep on duty. How could they all fall asleep so soundly that the mass of stone could be rolled away without making enough noise to wake up even one of them? It does not explain why the apostles would waste any time unwrapping the body of Jesus. Remember all the grave wrappings were found laying there in the morning? They, with these guards asleep outside, they are not going to waste any time, risk getting caught to unwrap his body before they carry it away. And it does not explain why not one single apostle ever in the following years, while one by one they were tortured and executed for proclaiming that empty tomb, why not one of them ever said, whoa, now, hey, wait just a minute. I'm not going to die for something I know is a lie. Come with me, I'll show you where we hid his body. Now, there are religions around the world today where people die for lies that they don't know are lies, but have you ever heard of anyone who will die for a lie that they know is a lie? A lie that they themselves took part in? No, not at all. One, at least one throughout the years that follow, would have crumbled under the threat of torture and execution and said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to come clean. I'm going to show you where we hid the body because I don't want to die for something I know is a lie. That never happened. They all went to their punishment, to their deaths, still preaching the empty tomb of the risen and living Jesus Christ. All that this very first lie does is prove that the tomb was empty, prove that no one had any natural explanation for it, and prove that Satan was on a mission from day one to give people some other story to believe so that they could never get saved. Another lie invented to avoid the truth of the empty tomb is one that says that everybody just went to the wrong tomb that morning. Now, <laughs> heard a little giggle over there. Yeah, because, really, uh, the wrong tomb? We know that Joseph of Arimathea owned the tomb. He donated the tomb in which they placed the body of Jesus. He knew which tomb was which. The people who carried Jesus' body and placed it in that tomb knew exactly what tomb they had placed Jesus in. Nobody went to the wrong tomb that morning and didn't even realize it. And besides, if that did happen, I guarantee you the Pharisees knew which tomb was the right one. They put a wax seal across the door. They had Roman guards standing there. They knew what tomb Jesus' body was placed in, and they would have said, you dummies, you went to the wrong one. Come over here to the right one, and we'll show you the cold, dead, rotting body. If anyone went to the wrong tomb, the people who would be threatened by rumors of a risen Jesus would immediately go to the right tomb and put Jesus' body out on display. That one just falls apart. There are a lot of stories people eagerly believe and buy into so that they do not have to believe what the tomb means. The empty tomb stands for a truth that they do not want to have to look in the eye, and they willingly and eagerly believe a lot of other things instead. Let's look at just one more of these, and then we'll move on. The story that Jesus was not truly dead, he just passed out on the cross. And with the medical knowledge of the time being very limited, they thought he was dead. Some sort of a deep coma, maybe a very weak pulse that they couldn't pick up. They thought he was dead. But let's look at what these people are really claiming. Jesus, 
whipped to a bloody pulp when Pilate had him scourged, dehydrated and bled half to death, nailed hands and feet to a cross, a spear stuck into his side through his lungs and through his heart, certified dead by a Roman soldier who because of his job knew dead when he saw it. Jesus just passed out and he was placed in the tomb. And after three days in there with no food and no water, he woke up and he was strong enough to push the stone away from the door and beat up a whole squad of armed guards. Now nobody said the people coming up with these ideas are very smart. But what they are is very desperate to hide the resurrection and to get people to believe anything else. But why? It's not just the foolishness of man that does have a lot to do with it. But why would the establishment want people to believe that the guards fell asleep and the disciples stole the body? Why would the religious leaders want people to believe that everyone went to the wrong tomb? Why would people even today rather believe that Jesus never died but only passed out for a while? And the answer is this. Satan, the evil mastermind responsible for every anti-resurrection theory, no matter how ridiculous it may sound, desperately wants every person to believe anything at all instead of believing what that empty tomb means. What does, then, the empty tomb mean? To fully appreciate and to fully understand what the empty tomb means. Let's look at what God says in the scriptures a still-occupied tomb would have meant for every human being from Adam until now. In the Word of God, in 1 Corinthians again, chapter 15, verses 12 to 19. Okay. First, not, not, I was in Romans 15, is why I couldn't find it. 1 First, First Corinthians 15, chapter 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If that tomb remained occupied by a cold and rotting corpse of a non-divine mortal man named Jesus, naturally conceived the normal biological way by Joseph and Mary, if there were bones that we could go and dig up today, then all of the preaching you've ever heard in your entire life has been useless to you. The faith that you have placed in Jesus does nothing for you. I and every preacher of the gospel from that day until now stand guilty of being a liar 
I, along with you, if those things are true, am still lost and still dead in my sins and will face my own punishment. Every person who has ever died before us believing this gospel is being punished for their own sins right now. And we who have believed these things are truly the most foolish people of all if there was a body in that tomb to be found. If Christ was not raised, if his body had been there on that day or any day after for all to see, then the whole world is lost. And we might as well believe whatever we want, live however we want, because there's no hope for reward in the life after this, no fear of punishment in any life after this. And that is exactly the thing that Satan would willingly, rejoicingly have the whole world to believe. Satan would love for the whole world to believe that tomb remained occupied. But the body was gone that morning, as attested to by many eyewitnesses. No dead body was ever found that day or any day after. None of the disciples later, even under torture and death, ever confessed to taking and hiding that body. Over 500 witnesses for a period of 40 days saw, heard, ate with, and spoke with Jesus alive. No theory trying to explain the empty tomb holds water when we look at it through simple common sense. And the most important testimony of all, millions upon millions, uncountable millions of changed lives from that day until today, scream loud and clear, the tomb is empty, Christ is risen. Glory to God. There was, a, there was a man, a lawyer, named Simon Greenleaf. He was a law professor, and he was one of the founders of the Harvard School of Law. And Simon Greenleaf undertook to examine all of the available evidence concerning the reported resurrection of Jesus strictly through the lens of the legal rules of evidence, what would be admissible into a court of law. Not because Simon Greenleaf was a believer trying to prove the resurrection. No, but because Simon Greenleaf was an atheist, a disbeliever, trying to prove that the tomb was never found empty. He looked at every piece of evidence through uh, uh, the legal structure, through rules that would be admissible into a court of law to be acceptable by a judge as a disbeliever trying to disprove this and trying to give other people a legally examined basis for also not believing it. Now, would anyone here today care to take a wild guess what Simon Greenleaf came up with after he examined these things? Remember, he was a disbeliever trying to disbelieve it through, through a court of law. What do you think Simon Greenleaf found? Simon Greenleaf, after a cold, hard, disbelieving subjection of all available evidence to the rules of the legal system, concluded there is enough legally admissible evidence surrounding the reported resurrection of Jesus for a court of law to rule as a fact of history that it did happen. And this is just one of many times an atheist. There's another man, I forget his name right now, but uh, his testimony is out there. Uh, he wrote The Case for Christ, the case, the, the case for Faith, a lot of others. 
uh, he was an unbeliever, and he set out as a journalist to examine all of the evidence and to disprove all of these things, and he was converted by what he found out. He's one of the greatest apologists that exists right now today, going around preaching and proclaiming the gospel, all because he set out on a mission to prove to people that it was a lie, and the evidence convicting him, convincing him, converting him and saving him. This is what the truth does. There is enough legally admissible evidence surrounding the reported resurrection of Jesus for a court to rule as a fact of history that it did happen. But you know what? We don't need any court of men to officially and legally tell us that Jesus is risen. We know this. We believe this in faith. But the wonderful thing is our faith is not blind. Our faith is soundly supported by many evidences which can be tested. And the tomb is only one such evidence. It is a fact of history. The tomb was empty that day. The tomb is empty still. Jesus rose alive from that tomb. And he lives today, bodily, in glory with his Father, spiritually among us and within us. And because all of that is fact, gospel preaching achieves the purpose for which God sends it out, the salvation of sinners. The faith that you have placed in Jesus has saved you. No gospel preacher who just sticks with these facts can ever be charged with a lie. None of us who believe are lost. None who have died before us believing are lost. And we, among all people, have the most hope, the greatest joy, and the most wonderful reason to rejoice. The Gospel writers did not write, and Jesus died on the cross and was buried, the end. They did not even write, on the third day the tomb was empty, the end. Because that was not the end. What God was doing then, he is still doing today. The risen Jesus, proven by the empty tomb, saving sinners who will repent and call upon his name in faith. What a wonderful thing. All of this and much more was written by men, specially selected for the job by God the Father, moved and inspired by God the Holy Spirit to write without error, without falsehood, to testify of what had been done for all mankind by God the Son, Jesus Christ, to guide us, to teach us, to grow us, but also for one clear and overarching reason. Would you take up your Bible, and I'd love it if you'd read aloud with me even, in the book of 1 John, chapter 5, and verse 13. 1 John chapter 5 and 13, when you're there, let's read it together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That we may know that we have eternal life. Wow! Not just think so. Not just hope so. Not just, you know, like so many other ways out there try to do enough good things, try to work hard enough to make it so, but know that we do through 
faith in Jesus Christ. To you today, who believe in the name of the Son of God, and who know that in Him you have eternal life, again I say, He is risen. And let the church respond with confidence. He is risen indeed. Wow. It's one more thing. In closing, I'd like to share a poem with you. A poem written by a man who you might have heard of, a man named John Newton, one of the greatest pastors of the 18th century. It has no title, but John Newton wrote this. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or by fear, until a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and in blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Never until my last breath will I ever forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me to despair. I saw my sin, his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I die so that you can live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all of its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace that it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and with mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. I've never given all of you uh, my personal testimony, but you've pretty much heard it right there in that poem. I loved my sin, be honest with you. Oh, how did I love my sin back in those days, never realizing that my entire life whipped Jesus back, spit in his face, plucked the beard off of his chin, mocked him, drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. My life, my sin nailed him to the cross and thrust that spear through his heart. The life that I thought I loved so much, the life that I thought was so much fun, made it necessary for Christ to have to die. If you want to know who killed the Lord of glory, I did. It was only when I understood that and clearly saw that that I was finally able to hear him say, because of love, I do this so that you can live, so that you don't have to die and be punished for the things you've done. Because of love, Jesus hung in my place, and he suffered the death that my sins deserved. Because of love, Jesus arose alive, and he left behind an empty tomb as proof that in him I have eternal life. And because of love, this very same promise extends to all who will believe these things and repent from their own sins 
and call upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith to be saved. Now, some may not have truly and deeply and personally done that. Today's not too late. We're all still alive. We're all still breathing. Till we're dead and in our own grave, we still have that opportunity, that chance, that invitation. Good Friday and Easter, as we've celebrated last week, these are important days for us. As we remember the cross and as we rejoice for the empty tomb. But it goes on from there. Because of love, that empty tomb is not the end. Glory be to our living God. Now, if you have any announcements, Don? Um, I don't even have a bulletin. Is there anything special? Nothing special in there. So we'll, we'll sing our closing song. Let's all stand. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.